Hello, I'm Silvio Borcescu from Ensama Center and uh, I have a presentation, a very interesting one, about opioid addiction. And uh, I will just give you some uh, uh, knowledge that you need to uh, get a handle on this issue uh, if you yourself are dealing with it or uh, other people that you care for um, are uh, uh, addicted to opioids. Now, let's start our story in 1756. Uh, yes, I know. If we start in 1756, when are we going to get out of here? Well, have some patience. It's relevant for what we are doing here. 1756, uh, King Dynasty uh, was ruling China. The emperor was not that happy because his Westerners were snooping around its, uh, his empire for military secrets and uh, also he was, uh, he was concerned about the cultural influence that uh, these Western traders have on the Chinese people. So he decided to limit all the trade with outside world to Guangzhou port, somewhere in the Hunan province. This uh, worked for a while, but uh, it caused some ripple effects in the rest of the world. A British East India Company was one of the main corporations involved with trade at that time. Uh, British East India Company is not to be confounded with its Dutch counterpart, the uh, Verenigte Ostindische Compagnie, or VOC, uh, a much bigger company. In fact, uh, it had quite a bit of first in, in the world, the first multinational, the first mega corporation, the first corporation to sell stocks as a way to get uh, investors to uh, put money into the corporation. VOC was a huge company at its height. It had a million employees and it ran a fleet of uh, around 5,000 ships. So we are talking now not about VOC, but the British East India Company. So, some um, quote-unquote wise men from uh, the British East India Company, they thought how to respond to this because they couldn't go too long by incurring losses in the trade with China. And uh, they had the, against quote-unquote smart idea to flood China with opium. Now, opium was uh, cultivated in huge plantations in Benares in India, so they had a lot of it at hand. They put it in Guangzhou and from there it kind of spread in whole China. 1767, uh, this uh, uh, maneuver worked just fine. The British were selling 2,000 chests in, in China at that time. Not very sure how many pounds does a chest make, but I'm sure that it's a pretty big, uh, uh, pretty big uh, amount. Enough to start upsetting the Chinese rulers of the time. In 1799, the emperor decided to outlaw the use of opium, but this did not cause a dent in the use of opium. So uh, in 1863, uh, Dao Guang, the emperor of China at that time, decided to take the matters in his own hands, sent the emissaries to uh, Guangzhou and uh, told the traders, the Western traders, to stop trading in opium and turn in all the opium stashes that they had. Uh, the Western traders, of course, ignored this uh, demand and the Chinese emperor practically put the city under siege. The British Empire sent the troops and voila, we have a war. The first opium war, which lasted two to three years and ended up with China being defeated and um, uh, having to concede uh, Macau to the Portuguese government and Hong Kong to the British government. It started what the Chinese call the century of humiliation. 
So uh, this uh, uh, opium, what, what is it? Why do nations go to war over such, uh, such a substance? Now, uh, opium was, uh, uh, was known to mankind since uh, 3500 before Christ. Opium is a derivative which is obtained out of a plant called the papaver somniferum or opium poppy or just poppy. As opposed to marijuana, which is a uh, um, plant, uh, quite unremarkable, but kind of a workhorse because it's very versatile, you can do many things with it. Papa versomniferum is a decorative plant. It, f it flowers and the flower is a, a really a beautiful, um, uh, beautiful uh, plant that uh, you can see in, uh, uh, in uh, traditional landscapes, uh, of, uh, in, in a lot of paintings. And uh, it's even uh, the official uh, flower of the state of California. Uh, but uh, its uses are not uh, as versatile as marijuana. It, practically, it has some role in the uh, food industry. Everybody knows about uh, the poppy seeds on the bagels. And by the way, if you eat uh, the sufficient amount of those bagels, you are going to come up uh, positive on a urine toxicology test. So be cautious, be easy on the bagels if you go for a test uh, for a job application, for example. Now, uh, of course, uh, the, pop the poppy plant uh, has a lot of utilization in uh, medicine as well, uh, but uh, uh, unfortunately uh, is cultivated for illegal purposes a lot in, in, in the world still. So the, the plant, if you can imagine, it has a fruit or a pod uh, lo that looks like a spherical uh, like a like a sphere with three to four inches in diameter, it, it has a color uh, which can be described as uh, white, uh, pale green. If you cut that pod, uh, the pod will ooze some kind of uh, substance, a latex-like substance, whitish latex-like substance, uh, that when dries up, uh, voila, you have the opium. So that's the opium. This um, uh, resin that oozes out of uh, the opium pod and you can scrape it off and um, uh, make uh, opium out of it. Now, um, what, uh, what is uh, opium? Why is opium so desirable? All these people, the Mesopotamians, who were cultivating it in 3500 BC, passed it on to the Egyptians, who passed it on to the Greeks, who brought it into India and Persia. In fact, uh, a name that you might recognize, Alexander the Great, was the one who spread the poppy into India, which became for a long time the main part, the main place on this earth where pop a poppy plant was cultivated. Of course, not Alexander the Great himself uh, brought the poppy seeds, but just uh, his uh, uh, military expeditions kind of took uh, uh, products from Greek and uh, Greece and spread them in, into the Far East. So um, the opium uh, uh, plant, the poppy plant, uh, has been around for many uh, years, uh, for many uh, thousands of years, and uh, it had mainly a uh, medicinal use. They uh, mostly were cultivating it for its uh, properties, for uh, what it did to people. And we will uh, get into this. For a long time, until 1803, um, nobody knew why opium does what it does. In 1803, a, uh, a German pharma pharmacist by the name uh, Wilhelm Friedrich Adam Zerturner 
managed to isolate the active substance out of, uh, out of opium and called it morphine. Called it morphine from the Greek god of dreams, Morpheus. Yes, I know when I say in Morpheus, you might be thinking of uh, Lawrence Fishburne in The Matrix. And yes, uh, apparently the Wachowski siblings who wrote and uh, directed The Matrix did not choose that name at random. So uh, it took another 30 years before the next most important component, uh, active component of opium was discovered, that was codeine. These two together, they make a part of the, uh, of the opioids, which are called uh, sleep-inducing opioids. They are uh, the kind of opioids that put people to sleep. They uh, t uh, kind of uh, decrease the alertness, the level of alertness. There is also another category of opioids, which are called uh, non-sleeping-inducing inducing opioids, uh, like uh, papaverine and tebaine, uh, much less uh, well-known, uh, because they don't have an addictive potential. Now, uh, the opioids are part of a bigger family called the uh, alkaloids. The uh, term is also invented by a, a German, uh, Karl Meissner, and uh, it's a term borrowed from Latin, who borrowed it from Greek, who borrowed it from Arabic. Alkali, alkali means the ash uh, residue that uh, you get after you burn a plant, so plant ash, that was, that's what it means. From this uh, group of substances, uh, there are other uh, important. Um, uh, from this group of uh, substances, there are other important derivatives like uh, cocaine and nicotine to other addictive substances, but also purely medicinal substances like uh, quinidine and uh, atropine, uh, and of course the big group of opioids. Another way to classify these opioids is by uh, looking at how are they manufactured. The ones that are derived straight from the plant, from the poppy, opium poppy, are called the real opioids. Now there are semi-synthetic opioids, that means chemists took these components and uh, acted upon them, uh, tweaked uh, with the molecule uh, to a certain extent, and uh, came up with uh, a new generation called the semi-synthetic opioids. But the story doesn't end there, uh, chemists also synthesized other uh, molecules which have no uh, connection, they're not from the same family of uh, substances, but they do the same things like the opioids and therefore they are included in the opioid group and they are called the synthetic opioids. Usually the synthetic opioids are, uh, tend to be more powerful than the original opioids uh, and uh, they have, they were uh, mostly discovered for uh, uh, medicinal purposes, but uh, one uh, exception is uh, very prominent that this is heroin. Heroin is uh, diacetyl morphine, so it's a minor tweak to the molecule of morphine, the main ingredient of opium, uh, which uh, has two advantages uh, in the eyes of the opioid merchants. One is um, uh, it shrinks the volume of the morphine and the second, it's a very liposoluble substance. And what does it mean? It means that it gets to the brain very fast. But heroin has a big disadvantage. It's a very short-acting medication. In fact, the half-life is three minutes. After that is uh, changed into morphine and monoacetyl morphine, which uh, are still active and they will still continue to work um, up to an, uh, an hour, and a half an hour, an hour. Let's see, let's start with the beginning. If you made the stupid decision to inject heroin, what is going to happen? Within uh, seconds, 
you feel you start feeling a rush uh, it's uh, a extremely enjoyable pleasant feeling somewhere in the abdomen and uh, this uh, lasts for only one or two minutes and then uh, you start continuing to feel a sense of uh, indifference to boredom uh, decrease uh, response to stress or stressful uh, situations and uh, a decrease in level of alertness uh, this lasts for another half an hour and an hour and uh, then the effect is gone now a philosophical question uh, if uh, it does make people happy does create this rush and after that a, a state of happiness what is the problem why should we not just all go around uh, uh, injecting heroin well, to answer this question, you have to understand uh, how the brain works. Uh, the brain has, uh, uh, in, uh, in its evolutionary process, the brain um, uh, acquired, let's say, uh, some, somewhat of a rough inner compass, a compass that uh, orients the individual to behave in a certain way uh, that is uh, beneficial for self and for the species. So uh, the main, uh, this, this inner compass, um, in order to communicate with the individual, uh, has to give him a message that uh, it's good what it's being done and uh, continue to do it. Uh, if not continuously, then at least uh, uh, repeatedly and uh, uh, with a certain frequency. And these um, behaviors that uh, the inner compass considers beneficial for individual are uh, eating and uh, sexual activities uh, for obvious causes you're going to say that um, both of them at a, in access can uh, can be detrimental to the individual and that may be the case but uh, in general uh, it's very little dispute that these two activities are very useful for the individual and species and the species both the individual and the species will practically collapse if people will not engage in these two activities of course, the pleasure centers doesn't respond only to that. It also responds to higher order pressures like um, uh, other people expressing gratitude or admiration towards you or uh, physical exercise. That's a known way to trigger the pleasure center. And now we have the um, opioids or opioids derivatives who practically uh, hijack the system. They just uh, come into the system via the um, vascular, via the blood, and once they reach this uh, uh, inner compass, they trigger it. What is this inner compass? You have to imagine that uh, when you talk about the device, you're not going to find something with a cover on it inside the brain. It's a much more subtle uh, device that we are speaking about, but in essence, it consists of uh, two main centers. One of them the, is the ventral tegmental area and the other one is nucleus accumbens. The VTA is uh, in the midbrain, the nucleus accumbens in, is in the uh, lower uh, lobe of the, uh, of the temporal, the uh, lower part of the temporal, uh, in the lower pole of the temporal lobe. So um, when uh, the uh, impulse starts from the VTA and gets into the nucleus accumbens and from there in other areas like the frontal lobe or amygdala, the result is people reporting, feeling an intense pleasure. So that's the, uh, the inner compass that I'm speaking about. Now the opium, the opioid components, what they do, they trigger this uh, device uh, with no reason. That means uh, without the individual doing anything useful for oneself or for the species. 
and uh, they do it by uh, uh, stimulating in a direct way the nucleus accumbens but also by releasing the brakes from the VTA so in two ways they release the brakes from the VTA therefore the VTA is free to discharge more uh, more electricity and on the other hand they stimulate in a direct way the nucleus accumbens so that's in principle what they do why is it bad well it's bad for two main reasons one is uh, it depletes the system any device if you use it overuse it abuse it then you are going to have uh, a device that is not so responsive like uh, like it was initially so uh, uh, it just uh, leaves you after each use of heroin into a state of depletion of uh, activity in the in the pleasure centers uh, which are experienced as a just miserable mood and this is what forces people to do it again and again now another issue is that uh, the center when you stimulate it at that level at a massive level because when you put morphine from outside in fact you stimulate these uh, centers much harsher than the way they would have been naturally stimulated uh, you have uh, a um, uh, decreased responsiveness of these centers to the normal uh, normal uh, stimulants of the system so you're going to have an individual for whom uh, the regular uh, joys of uh, uh, eating, uh, having a partner, um, getting praise from other people or uh, exercising don't mean anything anymore. Why? Because they are used to the intense, intense rash or intense stimulation that the chemicals are causing to his uh, inner pleasure compass. Now, uh, let's see what uh, what is the effect after that? So we established uh, about the device, we established about how this device is accessed through the back door, through a loophole into the system, and you, we have this uh, abnormal activation. But now, what does it lead to? Well, if you do that, of course, people are uh, pleasure-seeking uh, beings. They're going to do again and again what causes them to feel pleasure and uh, you develop what we call addiction or dependence. Now I'm going to uh, make it clear what dependence means because this is a very fuzzy concept out there in the, in the society at large. But in psychiatry we are very specific about what addiction means. If you want to uh, diagnose addiction, you go about this way. You identify first a 12-month target period. It can be a target period that starts from today up to 12 months in the past or it can be any 12 months period if you want to establish if this diagnosis was present at a certain point in uh, in someone's life so you let's say that you want to diagnose in the present you look at the period from today up to 12 months in the past the first two criteria that must be met and by the way there is a list of seven criteria and three of them is enough to be met within this 12 months period they don't have to overlap but if they are present within this 12 months period then you call yourself you you uh, call that person uh, a uh, addict or uh, opioid dependent uh, patient so uh, what are these uh, these um, uh, manifestations first uh, the first two are very easy uh, very easy to understand very easy to explain is kind of no confusion about that first tolerance and then uh, withdrawal Tolerance means that um, you need more uh, to take of this uh, addictive substance, let's say in this case opioids, to get the same effect. So you see that uh, 
one bag of heroin is not enough. After a week, you need two. And after three, after another week, you need two, uh, three. And after another week, you need four, and so on. So you see, you see this, uh, uh, this um, tendency to develop uh, uh, tolerance to the effects of the medication. And in fact, in um, heroin clinics, and yes, there are such things as heroin clinic, but only in Switzerland, where people are allowed to inject heroin under the supervision in order to avoid them going out there and uh, causing a lot of um, disruption for the society. So in these clinics, uh, uh, people who are addicted to opioid, they have been injecting up to 300 milligrams uh, without uh, any respiratory depression, which would be a dose that would practically put into ICU any uh, average um, uh, person from the street. So a very high dosage. You developed a lot of tolerance to very high dosages. Now, um, another the, the other one is withdrawal, which is also very straightforward. Uh, withdrawal is what happens if you abruptly stop the use of a substance, of an addictive substance. In the case of opioids, it manifests itself through... Uh, perspiration or sweating and um, uh, runny nose and uh, uh, tearing and um, piloerection or goosebumps, uh, muscle twitches, um, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, so these, if that happens when you stop, that means that the criteria of uh, withdrawal is met. We have uh, two other criteria which are kind of linked together. Increasing amount of time spent in activities related to getting the drug, being intoxicated with the drug and recovering from the drug. So uh, when you see this pattern over 12 months that you uh, more and more time is spent in this kind of activities, you know that uh, you have yourself the third uh, criteria and uh, you don't even have to go any further because at, the, at that moment you do have a diagnosis of dependence. But let's go further and see what is after that is kind of uh, linked to the previous one. Uh, if you spend more and more time in activities related to uh, getting the drug, being intoxicated, recovering from the drug, that means that you are going to crowd out other activities. And this is the fourth criteria, is crowding out of activities that used to be meaningful in the past. Spending time with the family, working, exercising, just socializing with friends. This kind of is crowded out. You don't do it anymore because you need your time uh, to put into uh, the drug-related activities. Now, the fifth criteria is um, uh, use that goes beyond what you initially intended. That means this feeling of losing control in the 12 months uh, target period. You have to establish if there is this pattern of uh, using more than you initially intended, more in amount or time. For example, you set yourself a certain limit. I'm going to do only one bag of heroin today, but at the end of the day, you do three or four. Or, I'm, or say, okay, only Saturday I'm going to get high. But then when Saturday comes, you see that Saturday and Sunday and maybe even Monday, you were continuously using drugs. So this is a sense of loss of control. Now, criteria number six is continuous use despite awareness of the problem. So that means, is this situation where within 12 months, the person can recognize that uh, this activity ruins their health or other aspects of their lives, but they simply cannot stop. So continuous use despite awareness of uh, problems. And finally, another related, another related um, uh, criteria is uh, repeated failed attempts to stop. So again, it's linked to this, uh, to this concept of losing control. So uh, within the 12 months, 
target period, the person reports that they made several attempts to stop, but this was just not working out. Or uh, sometimes it doesn't have to be a, an attempt in the sense that actually stop, but just this thought that you want to stop on repeated occasions, but not uh, followed by any success. That means the, the seventh criteria is met. So again, this is dependence. You are dependent when you meet for uh, the, the target 12 month period. Uh, there are uh, three out of a list of seven symptoms period uh, pre, um, uh, presence, and these are tolerance, withdrawal, increasing amount of time spent in activities related to getting uh, the drug, being intoxicated with the drug, and recovering from the drug, crowding out of other activities like uh, work, uh, social interactions, time spent with the family, exercise. Repeated attempts, failed attempts to stop this feeling of uh, having lost control use of the drug more than what is initially intended and finally the continuous use despite awareness of problems let's say that uh, you decided to uh, take that step and uh, get into this uh, use of opioids i am going to predict the future for you of course um, i'm going to bring statistics and even if you are going to tell me yeah there are lies them lies and statistics I am going to reply to you that um, there are no better ways. Uh, it's not great, but uh, there are no better ways unless you are a fan of uh, reading tarot cards or uh, chicken entrails or uh, reading the coffee mug. I like to bring up a study that has been done in California because it involves a long period of time and also a large number of people. So California study followed uh, 581 uh, addicted uh, patients with, to opioids for a time span of 33 years. So at the end of the 33 years, let's see what we have. Well, uh, 241 only are still alive. That means a uh, mortality rate of 50%, around 50%, 49%. What does that mean? Um, you might say people die, so what's the big deal? 33 years is a long time. Uh, you, Of course, some of the, the people are not going to make it. Well, not so fast. 50% mortality rate means 50 times higher mortality rate than it should have been for that very same uh, number of people if they were not addicted to the opioid. So 50 times higher mortality rate in that group. From the people who are still alive, what happened to them? Well, let's see. 20% of them were still addicted. They went on at it as if nothing happened, so still addicted. 40% of them, they were uh, partially addicted. What does that mean? In kind of partial recovery. They were uh, essentially not using drugs, but uh, here and there they would relapse. The rest, 14% were in prison. So these are uh, people who uh, did not, uh, did not uh, uh, make it out of prison or uh, they were at that point in, in prison. And then another 16% were squeaky clean. They were clean, but you know, cleanliness means that you are absent for uh, a year and the moment of the 33 year landmark follow up. Now, if uh, these uh, numbers do not mean much, let me put them into a little more colorful way. Let's say that you have a hundred people coming at a, a wide mountain river, very rapid, very fast, very cold, and um, they think how to cross it and they say, well, we are not going to go. 10 miles upstream to cross the river on a bridge, but we are going to just go in the river and try to get on the other side. 
What happened out of this 100? Well, out of this 100, 50 of them, they will just die. They just uh, sink to the bottom and they are carried to the ocean. That's, that's done. That's uh, said and done. From uh, the people who survive, only uh, 10 people are on the other side intact, still healthy, still okay. 20 of them are on the other side, but they are a wreck. They are so beaten by the rapids and by the stones that they are practically crippled. Another seven of them are uh, in the middle of the river on a stone, hanging on on a boulder, uh, still alive, but uh, not quite out of uh, trouble because they still have to do something about uh, getting out of the river. And another, another ten of them, you see them going down the river, then they didn't sink, you see them, but they are just washed away, they are still in the river. And uh, another few of them, you just don't know what happened to them. So that's pretty much it. Out of a hundred, only 10 are going to get on the other side in an intact manner. Another 20 are going to uh, have some damage. And uh, half of them, uh, half of a uh, hundred, that means 50 people are going to die trying to cross that river. Now, you have to ask yourself, are you going to step into that river if this is, these are your odds of getting on the other side? Well, so let's see. Let's uh, assume that you made this mistake, you stepped into the river, and uh, now uh, you want to be saved. What can be done to uh, reverse this process? What is the treatment for opioid dependence? Well, obviously, the treatment will depend on what phase are you with this addiction. If you are already uh, unconscious and barely breathing, then obviously you need a certain form of treatment. If you are uh, intoxicated and want to quit, uh, another form of treatment. If you are already abstinent and you want to maintain abstinence, that's another form of treatment. So if you are unconscious, barely breathing, then you need to get to the ICU, clean up the respiratory tract and uh, be intubated and uh, an antidote uh, must be given. Uh, it's either naloxone or uh, nalmifene or Revex. Uh, they can reverse, these two substances can reverse right away the effects of the opioids and can resuscitate a person, bring a person back to life. Uh, naloxone is a shorter acting uh, medication. It lasts for about uh, an hour, uh, two hours, and uh, nalmifene or Revex lasts for about 12 hours, 10 to 12 hours. So let's say that you are not in so dire straits as to need ICU treatment. You just want to quit. There are uh, three options that you have. One is to stop taking opioids and just allow the withdrawal to take its natural course. What is that going to, uh, going to mean for you? If you use short-acting opioids like uh, heroin or opioid pain medication, Percocet, Vicodin, Oxycontin, then you are going to start feeling the pinch of withdrawal uh, around uh, 12 to 24 hours after you stop. Within 48 hours, it will reach a peak and uh, after uh, seven days, it's pretty much over. If you use long-acting opioids like methadone, then your withdrawal will start after 2-3 days. It will reach a peak within 7 days and you need another week, that means a total of 2 weeks, maybe even 3 weeks, to get completely out of the physical part of the withdrawal. After this physical part of withdrawal is over, you are going to deal with the psychological part of the withdrawal, which means cravings and um, a, a certain dysphoria. That means uh, not feeling right, not enjoying anything. And this can last for a month or even more than that. So this is the natural course of uh, the, uh, the withdrawal. And uh, while you are withdrawing, what is it going to happen to you? Well, first, uh, you are going to feel miserable, either agitated, anxious, 
irritable, uh, sleep is going to be very difficult, if not impossible. You are going to see uh, your uh, flesh uh, going, uh, uh, going with goosebumps all over the place, that's uh, piloerection in medical terms. You are going to sweat like crazy, um, sometimes uh, your nose is runny, you tear up with no reason, uh, you um, uh, start having a lot of nausea and maybe even vomiting, diarrhea. So uh, it's a miserable time. Sometimes it gets so bad that you need to go to the emergency room to be given some IV fluids uh, to, uh, to counteract the dehydration. So um, this method is okay. It's okay to uh, choose if you are uh, relatively young, relatively healthy. But it can become a problem in people who have cardiac conditions or they are already debilitated by other illnesses like HIV or TB. Uh, or just uh, at an older age, uh, that's when the withdrawal can become uh, problematic. But uh, in some countries like Singapore, uh, withdrawal with no uh, chemical support is pretty much the norm, is a policy in fact. So let's say that you don't want the hard way, you want to get some relief and uh, what are the options then? You can do it either by using opioids or uh, medications other than opioids. Uh, it's, this process goes uh, on in the uh, medical detox, that means inpatient units, but it can happen as an outpatient as well. So what is the procedure? You are going to be given in an inpatient unit methadone, for example, up to 40 milligrams in the first day, and after that the methadone dose is going to be tapered off uh, 25-33% to every day. The whole process takes 5-7 to seven days. Now, uh, some uh, programs prefer not to give methadone automatically, but to just uh, give methadone only when there are blood pressure or pulse elevations, or maybe some other objective signs of withdrawal. And uh, if you do not get them, then you just uh, don't uh, get any methadone and uh, you spend uh, three to five or seven days into detox uh, until the worst of it is over. Uh, there is uh, another way to detox without uh, any opioids and this uh, may involve the use of medications like uh, clonidine or um, uh, Benadryl for sleep or uh, promethazine for uh, nausea. Now clonidine is a medication that stops the physical withdrawal, that means uh, can alleviate the, uh, the sweatiness, the goosebumps, the um, uh, uh, nausea, the, the physical part of withdrawal. Uh, but uh, it's not going to alleviate the psychological part, that means uh, agitation, insomnia. There are other medications for that, as I said, Benadryl can be used for sleep, Trazadone maybe, Vistaril as needed during the day for uh, anxiety, and uh, in some people who uh, would like, uh, in some medical personnel who likes uh, to take some risks for the comfort of the patient, the benzodiazepines may be used. So you are out of the immediate, uh, immediate danger. You are already detoxed, so-called, detox detoxified. Uh, and now you are wondering what is next. Well, next is going to be uh, a treatment based on two philosophical approaches. One of them is zero tolerance and the other one is harm reduction. Let me speak about the zero tolerance. Zero tolerance means that you are striving to become completely abstinent. Uh, in that situation, uh, you are going to uh, either go to a 28-day uh, program 
By the way, the story of the 28-day program is like this. In uh, 1800, a group of uh, alcohol-dependent people, they got together and uh, they uh, figured out a way uh, based on a 12-step uh, recovery system to get out of the alcohol dependence. In uh, the approximately a century later, two um, alcoholics from Chicago, they uh, took over and refined a little bit this 12-step program and uh, they invented the um, AA uh, structure that uh, persists even today, very, very popular in treating alcohol, but also uh, other or de dependencies. In uh, 1950, uh, 1950s, uh, the Hazelden Foundation uh, took uh, the same principle of 12-step uh, recovery and um, uh, molded a 28-day program which can be applied to any dependence, no matter what those the substance used. And uh, since then, we have the um, uh, in the system of uh, twenty uh, of uh, five to seven days detoxification, then twenty-eight day program in an inpatient unit, and then there are a host of outpatient programs that can last anywhere between three to six months. There is also another um, uh, form of treatment, which nowadays is a, a little more rare than before, is the treatment community. It was uh, started, this form of treatment was started in uh, 1958 in California. The first uh, treatment community was called Sinanon, and uh, it involved people actually living and working in a community, a little isolated from the rest of the society, uh, and controlled in terms of uh, the use of uh, drugs. Uh, and this treatment can go on for six months or 12 months or even more. So this is the zero-tolerance approach. Now there is another approach called the... Uh, the harm reduction model. The harm reduction model is like a capitulation. You just decided that you just cannot make it. You are going to be dependent and uh, you have the choice either to take it from the street or to take it from an institution that will uh, uh, provide it to you in a controlled manner. Now, the um, uh, harm reduction programs are uh, based on three uh, medications. Uh, one of them is uh, methadone, the most uh, the most uh, widespread, uh, the methadone clinics are about 800 in the United States. They serve something like uh, 200,000 people in the United States. They uh, are uh, uh, spread all over the world as well. Uh, they have pr been proven to be effective in uh, decreasing the criminality and decreasing the unemployment among uh, opioid-dependent uh, patients. Now, uh, they don't do miracles. In fact, um, harm reduction and uh, zero tolerance, they kind of uh, claim pretty much the same uh, rate of success, and rate of success defined as maintaining abstinence is really pretty poor. It's around 20%. But uh, what uh, the methadone maintenance programs claim is, and um, again claim with studies, is that they decrease the criminality and uh, the unemployment among people who uh, frequent those clinics. And uh, this is uh, not a minor uh, result. The other, the other substance that is used uh, to, uh, in this uh, harm reduction model is LAM. Uh, LAM is a long-acting uh, opioid medication that uh, lasts, has the advantage over the methadone that it lasts for uh, two, three days in your system. So it needs only uh, three times a week administration as opposed to the methadone, which is daily. Uh, both methadone and LAM uh, carry some uh, uh, cardiac risk uh, in uh, dosages slightly higher than what is given routine. It can affect the QT interval that's uh, on the EKG. There is a uh, change uh, that we call QT prolongation that can lead to a lot of arrhythmias and sometimes fatal arrhythmias. 
So uh, finally, there's the buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is the latest substance introduced in the treatment of uh, um, opioid dependence. It's the only substance approved for the use in private office. And uh, the treatment uh, is uh, considered pretty safe because uh, the risk of um, respiratory depression is very low with uh, buprenorphine, even in overdose. It's uh, what we call a mixed agonist-antagonist or partial agonist. It um, um, does uh, stimulate the opioid receptors, but uh, up to a certain level. And after that, uh, no matter how much you take, you are not going to get any additional benefit. Uh, the buprenorphine treatment starts uh, has to start once the withdrawal, uh, some kind of mild withdrawal, is already there because being a partial agonist, uh, it will uh, it can precipitate withdrawal if taken too soon after the last dose of opioid. The dosages are usually 8 milligrams, um, above 8 milligrams. Uh, uh, it's, there are, uh, let's say it's justified in some patients, but uh, 8 to 10 milligrams are pretty much the maximum that you need to obtain a uh, pretty good control of the withdrawal and the cravings for opioids. In closing, I'm going to discuss about uh, a notion called codependence because it's a very popular term. What does it mean? Codependence is used in uh, different contexts to mean different things, but there are two main meanings. One of the meaning is this tendency of the friends and family of a person who has a opioid dependence to deny the existence of this problem and also to refuse any kind of intervention to make it stop. Another meaning is uh, the tendency of the friends or family of a patient who is addicted to opioids to protect that person from the consequences of the drug. That means uh, pay the fines or look for another job if they lose the job, get them a lawyer if they are in trouble with the law and so on. Uh, codependency is important to understand and uh, know about it because uh, it does nothing to help. On the contrary, it's very destructive when this attitude sets in in the relatives of the patient with a dependence issue and uh, it just uh, prolongs the problem and uh, because it's prolonging it, it has the likelihood to, um, to enhance the uh, chances of a very negative outcome in that situation. Thank you and uh, I'll see you soon.